Father, I thank You so much for this morning and for Your people. And Lord, we delight that You are our vision. And I ask that You give today heavenly wisdom, that Lord, You'd open the eyes of the hearts and the minds of the people present, that they would see as You see. Give me grace, Lord. Lord, I wanna preach. It says in the Scripture that preaching, there's a power in it. There's a, there's, even though it's foolishness, there's a power in it and it changes hearts. Father, I wanna do that today, honouring Your Word, honouring Your Spirit. And so, Lord, would You be here with us, moving, we pray in Jesus' Name. Amen. Last few weeks, we've been examining the prophecy that the angel Gabriel gives to Zechariah. You'll remember this concerning John the Baptist and kind of moving very slowly through the text. And we won't always be this slow as we go through the book of Luke. Sometimes we're going to sit and just simmer and allow it to sort of pick out everything that's in there. And I think there's quite a lot in it. And the key that we're thinking as we approach it is that John is going to be full of the Holy Spirit. And you and I, if you're a Christian, are meant to be full of the same Spirit, which means that when we look at what God is calling John to do, I think we can draw some application from that on what God might call us to do or what God might do to us and through us in the world. It's the same Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist is like the first person in the New Testament. He's the last of the prophets of the Old Testament and kind of the first of the new. It's kind of in this in-between stage. And Jesus said of him that he was the greatest person in the, uh, in the old covenant, but the least person in the new was greater than him, which means anybody in this room, if you're for the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' eyes, you're greater than John the Baptist and probably not a greater believer or a greater obedience person, but you have got a greater portion of the Holy Spirit. And that is how come you're able to do more than he did. So I'm focusing today on the second part of Luke chapter 1 and verses 17. You can open there if you want to see the context, but I've already explained it. It says, He will turn, this is John full of the Holy Spirit, He's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And if anyone's confused by on the screen, it says, Spirit and power of Elijah. The Spirit and power of Elijah is the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's the, It is the Spirit of God. It's just a particular manifestation of the Spirit of God in Elijah. But don't be confused. Not a separate Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that filled Elijah would fill John. The same Spirit that filled John fills you. He will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. I think that the whole New Testament pivots on that line. The whole New Testament. I think everything that comes after this, everything John does, everything Jesus does, everything the church does, everything that's happened in church history since then, I think it pivots on this Line. And the reason I believe that is because this sentence establishes a division. There's a division in the world. There's disobedient, and then there's some people they could turn to. There's like, you can be in one camp, disobedient, or you can be in the camp of the wisdom of the just. And not a great translation. The ESV is really good for that. But elsewhere, you can maybe see it says, it's the, it, the state of mind of the righteous is perhaps a slightly better translation of that little phrase. But either way, that you can be in one camp disobedient or you can be in a second camp, which is righteous. And, and listen, that is super important because if you go to a football game and you're gonna watch the game be played, there's a lot of things that will happen, but there's a thing that happens before anything happens that's most important. And if it doesn't happen, there's no game. And that is that the people are divided into two camps. And the game can't happen if there's not two teams. 
If you don't decide who's on red and who's on blue, there is no game. And so you don't think about that when you turn up because you're just already, uh, you're already ready for the teams to be separated. But actually, there is an, a fact that happens before the game. And if you wanted to start a football team right here, in, or a football game right here in this room, the first thing we'd do is pick teams. In the same way, the first thing that happens in the New Testament is that God establishes a division. He says, hey, there's teams. You can either be in one or you can be in the other. And the gospel is not just about making you feel nice. It isn't just about healing your heart or your mind or making you have a better life. The gospel is actually about getting you out of the camp of the disobedient and into the camp of those who have the wisdom of righteousness. The whole of the message of John, the whole of the message of Jesus pivots on the fact that God wants to redeem rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted, wicked sinners and He wants to make them obedient and wise sons. And listen, this is a super important scriptural reality and it's under attack in the church today. In other times, listen, Satan is a very clever enemy. Okay, He, he knows how to play the game. And at other times, he'll put an overemphasis on disobedience. So he'll put all his emphasis on, you're a sinner, you're wicked, you're horrible. And he'll try and downplay that God loves you and wants you to become his son. He wants you to have an inheritance and he wants you to be part of his family. So what he does, he tries to make it so that people are scared of God in a bad way because all we're gonna talk about is disobedience. But there's another side and we're not in that side anymore. That is not a problem. If you're super, uh, if, you're not, if you're not super young, you might feel like that is still a leftover part of your childhood. Can I really strongly assure you, young people don't think that way today. Young people do not think they're disobedient at all. Everywhere in our culture and within the church, we are seeing a soft, limp-wristed approach to the kingdom of God that says, don't worry, most people are pretty good. Don't stress about it. You know what? Welcome them in. In fact, let's change what we're doing so that they feel more included without having to change. What we're doing is we're saying, we don't want to play teams against each other. Let's all just come together and sing Kumbaya. And let's not change because that's offensive. That's a little bit hurtful. And if you follow the news, you're going to have seen things that happened in the Anglican church last week and the thing that's happening to the Catholic church right now, which are really pushing these exact ideas. They're saying, listen, we, don't, we want to drop that because it's exclusive language. It's hurtful language. We want to kind of be nice to people. But that forgets that there's two camps. And if you're in the disobedient, then we don't want you to stay as you are. We want you to change. John the Baptist would not have recognised this kind of preaching. He might have quoted the prophet Jeremiah who said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I don't want to tell you peace. I don't want to tell you it's going to be okay. If you're in the camp of the disobedient, it's not okay. It's not a good thing. You need to change. And thankfully the gospel, John coming in the power of the Holy Spirit came to do just that. There is no peace. The world is divided into two, disobedient and righteous. The disobedient have as their father Satan and the righteous have as their father God. And Rod Dreher writes, a Christian church that gives up on the idea of repentance and of conversion in favour of an I'm okay, you're okay approach to the Christian life is not only betraying the gospel, but is also suicidal. 
If you stop telling people that they need to come out of that camp, out of darkness, into light, you're ultimately going to fall apart and no longer even exist because you're not honouring the God of the Scripture. You're not even doing what John the Baptist came. Okay, let's kind of come down there and start by asking the question, who are the disobedient? Now, you might already know this, but let's walk it through. For John, the disobedient was one particular group of people. John's mission was to the children of Israel. He wasn't sent to everybody else. And if you or I were there, he wouldn't have talked to us unless you happen to be Jewish and I don't know it. Okay, he would have ignored you because he was meant to go to the children of Israel. And the Old Testament, if you know the book, it's a kind of a tragic tale of the people of Israel. The people of Israel are God's chosen people. He says, hey, I called you out. I wanna bless you. I wanna make you a great nation. I wanna have a personal relationship with you. But the people of Israel continually reject God. They say, we don't wanna do it your way, God. We wanna do it our way. We wanna go our own way. And as a result, they fall into decay and destruction. And if you read the story, what you see is a a repeated promise that kind of builds in its um, uh, crescendo or or excitement over the course of the Old Testament that says God's going to come and change that. He's going to change the Israelites. I said the other week that it says that the Spirit of God is going to put into them a new heart that wants to obey God. In other words, the Spirit of God is going to come and make them not disobedient, but wise with the wisdom of Christ, righteous. It's kind of build of hope. So when John the Baptist arrives, he is exciting in the story of Israel because he's a herald that things are about to change. He's the guy, we don't have town cries anymore. What a pity. It'd be so great if someone walked down the street every morning and said, hear ye, hear ye. Uh, you know, the M1 is shut. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they did back in those days. And John the Baptist was one of those. He's a herald. He came to proclaim something. So get people's minds thinking, hey, the day is about to come when we're going to be changed. But the disobedient are not only the Israelites, and you guys know this, it's actually everyone. It says in the scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says there's no one who does good, not even one. See, the thing is, the story of the Israelites is like a miniature of the story of all humanity because God made us in His image and wanted us to delight in Him and walk with Him and know Him. But we chose to do our own thing. We chose independence. We chose disobedience. We said, I don't want to do what you want to do, God. I want to do what I want to do. And the thing is, God isn't upset at that because He's petty. Not like a parent. Sometimes parents get frustrated at their kids because the kid doesn't do what they want them to do. But it's just more because they're annoyed that the child has not listened to them. God is not that kind of God. The reason that he gets not only frustrated and caring and angry is because the world only works one way. I think in recent years, something has happened that helps us to picture this as good as anything. And that is computer programs. And maybe even a computer game. Some of you have no idea. You don't play those things. But in computer games, there are rules. And the game works a particular way. If you'd like to, you can break it so that you can do your own thing. But to do that, you have to break the whole game. You can't just do your own thing. You've got to break the game so that you can do your own thing. And I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that when Adam and Eve said, we want to do our own thing, God said, in order for you to do your own thing, I have to break the whole game. And that's why I believe the whole curse came in. I don't think it was just that God was annoyed at them because they did their own thing. I think it's because He said, okay, if you want to go your own way, 
the cost of that is that you have the whole world, the kind of world that you could go your own way. For example, going your own way means being able to kill when you're angry. And maybe before the fall, maybe Adam couldn't kill. Maybe they would live forever. But after the fall, God says, well, now you can do that if you'd like to do that. Going your own way means being able to have a terrible marriage that you don't put any effort into, that you don't work towards, that you don't love your wife in. And what do you get for that? All the pain and suffering of a terrible marriage. Going your own way means being able to ruin your health. Now, maybe before the fall, maybe before God, Adam disobeyed, maybe you could never ruin your own health. Maybe hypothetically, you could have sat there and eaten whatever Eve's version of a cheesecake was. You could have eaten a thousand of them in one day and not gained a single kilo. But when Adam and Eve said, we don't want to do things your way, we want to do it our way, God says, well, if you want to do it your way, I have to kind of tweak the universe so that you can. But that's going to mean some consequences because I made it perfectly one way and that way is my way. That's just how it is. Maybe I'm wrong about all that. But what I do know is that from birth, your main problem is your rebellion and your disobedience. External problems, society, nature, family, they're all real. They're real. They exist. But fixing them doesn't fix you and doesn't fix the world. And I know this because we could create a political and natural paradise. And you know what we'd still do? We'd still fight. We'd still cheat. And we'd still steal. And I know that because we live in Australia and it's amazing. I mean, think about this nation compared to anywhere else in history. There's money raining from the sky in the form of, you know, government support and there's beautiful beaches and the sun's lovely and you can have all the food you want almost all the time and you can have all the wine you want almost all the wine all the time and the wine's amazing and it's like this paradise on earth. I guarantee you people living even 150 years ago if they came here today would be floored by how amazing it is and we're all miserable (laughs) and it hasn't helped us one little tiny bit because we still fight and cheat and steal Because the external world is not the main problem. The main problem is the disobedience in our hearts. Until that's fixed, you're going to break whatever God puts in front of you. It's one of the reasons why it's not a trivial matter that people get saved in order to inherit eternal life. Because unless God changes your heart, you couldn't live in eternity of pleasure because you'd wreck it. You'd walk into heaven you'd see your neighbour who's slightly taller than you in the resurrection and you'd be consumed with jealousy and start making shoes that stood you up a little bit higher or start going out in the middle of the night to try and make him shorter and you'd just bring all the sins crashing back into perfect eternity. God has to take it out so that you just don't operate like that anymore, which is what he promises he will do and what he promises he is doing. So everybody is disobedient by nature. What is the wisdom of the just? As I said, you can translate that, and I think it's a bit better to translate that, the way of thinking of the righteous. The Bible divides wisdom into two categories. You'll see this through Scripture. The first kind of wisdom is earthly wisdom, human wisdom. And this is the wisdom that actually comes from our desire to do our own thing. It's a craftiness that makes us figure out how how can we get our own way. And this wisdom doesn't originate in the fear of the Lord, so it isn't kind of anchored in truth. And as a result, it produces a lot of abnormalities and problems. This wisdom of earth is the wisdom of the serpent in the garden. 
It says that the serpent, he was craftier, wiser than all the other creatures. But what does he do with that wisdom? He comes and says, Eve, are you sure God really said? Gets her mind thinking. She's thinking, oh, did God really say? It's kind of smart, kind of sounds good. It's a bit of wisdom in that. The wisdom of the below is the wisdom of the naughty child. Someone was telling me this week about their child figuring out how to do the thing that they had been told not to do and using all their intelligence to do it. You know, you've seen kids. Sometimes you think children are really, really stupid and then they proceed to figure out how to break the rules and you're like, maybe children are all geniuses. This is amazing, right? I used to, mum and dad would try and have secrets like my presents for my birthday, not, not bad secrets. And what I would do is I figured out that they would talk about that in their room and that if I stood in exactly the right place next to the window, this two-story house, if I stood exactly the right spot, cocked my ear a bit, I could hear what they were saying. Now, ah, pretty wise, eh? Yeah. Mum was like, you got elephant ears. <laughs> That's the wisdom of below. But let me take it a little bit further because the wisdom that comes from below isn't just that. It's the wisdom of a selfish adult. Listen, you know people who've got dysfunctional relationships. They, they're ruining the lives of everybody around them. And you ask them and they have a huge list of reasons why it's okay. Oh, I'm not really doing the wrong thing because this, 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 this. And that is wisdom from below. It's destructive. It's evil. I want to give you an even bigger sample because why not get topical? This is a story that is distressing, but it's a reality. It's from our world. In Canada, right now, they, are passing, they have passed laws since 2016 authorizing euthanasia. And there's a program for it. And euthanasia, I'm really clear, is a doctor killing a patient by lethal injection because the patient asks them to. And the reasons given, in theory, are suffering and pain and severe old age or illness. 10,000 people were euthanized last year in Canada, about 3% of deaths. Now, what's the wisdom of that? Because there is a wisdom. It's the wisdom that says these people are suffering. Their bodies and minds don't work as they used to. To quote as much, as closely as I can to the material, their life lacks dignity. They used to be strong and healthy people and now mental health or um, physical health or old age have robbed them of that. And therefore, they should be allowed to end their lives. Because life isn't worth living if you've got a chronic illness or severe pain all the time. Sounds a little wise, doesn't it? But what does that wisdom conveniently leave out? Now remember, the wisdom that is from below is always satanic. Doesn't matter how smart it sounds on the surface, underneath is going to be death and poison. What about people who are born with chronic illness? What about people who are born with disability? What about people who are born with mental illness? What do you think happens in a society that constantly tells people, if you're suffering those things, your life lacks dignity and it isn't worth living? Do you think it starts to translate down? I'm telling you now it does because already of those 10,000 deaths last year, there are multiple testimonies of people in their 30s and their 40s, not just ending their lives, but being encouraged by carers to end their lives. Multiple testimonies by parents saying that their child who was, say, in their thirties. One example of a guy who got blind. He got blind in one eye. And as a result, he suffered from depression for a season. And his carer recommended he take the option of being killed. And he didn't consult his parents. 
He didn't even ask them. And all they found out was he went down and was lethally injected by a doctor. Furthermore, and I'm, this is dark, but I know I'm trying, I'm going to try and, I'm using this to establish a principle that I think is really important. The law, and these laws, by the way, are coming to Australia because people are advocating for them because of the wisdom of the world that says things like, oh, feel bad for the people who are suffering. There is only one way of truth. And the lives of all people are either sacred or they are not. And we hold that they are sacred because they are now proposing to extend that law to enable parents to end the lives of small children if they believe the small children's lives are not worth living. And here's the problem with that. Who decides that your life is worth living? Do you decide or does God decide? God decides. Flannery O'Connor said, when tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, that is Jesus Christ, its logical outcome is terror. And I've got to tell you, when wisdom, cleverness, thinking is detached from God, its logical outcome is death and suffering. And that's exactly what's happening in Canada. And you can go and read stories. If you would like to find articles, you can put in the words MAID, M-A-I-D. That's the program. And you can find testimonies from parents and even from people who've written testimony before they were killed, saying things like, I was encouraged to do this because I couldn't find housing suitable for my disability. That's super dark. We're going to come up from that, don't worry. But you need to hear it, and the reason you need to hear it is because any wisdom that is not God's wisdom is evil. It's not just a little wrong, it's fundamentally wrong. And we are not just playing football. There really are two camps, and one camp is the camp of Satan, who seeks to rob, kill, steal, and destroy, and the other is of Christ. We're not playing games This is very real stuff. So that's one kind of wisdom, the wisdom from below. The other kind of wisdom is godly wisdom. This is the wisdom that allows people to reject the bad and choose the good. This wisdom comes from God and is rooted in the fear of the Lord. This is the wisdom that calls out in Proverbs. It says, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life. And obtains favour from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Christ has come and said, hey, I want you to have my wisdom. It's wisdom from above. It's got purity to it. It's got cleanliness to it. It's good for you. It's righteousness. It's life. That's the division. The division is between people who are disobedient and remain in the wisdom of disobedience or people who are turned in their hearts to the wisdom of righteousness leading on to life for them, for their neighbours and for eternity. So how are people turned? How are you going to get them out of this camp? I've got three steps. The first step is they need a messenger. God uses people to speak to people. God sends John the Baptist. Do you notice that Jesus plays a, a funny role in the establishment of the kingdom? He, he sends John sums to prepare. Jesus turns up and at the end of his job, he's got 12 disciples and a few others carries on. Those disciples then preach the gospel and they're the ones who get save, salvations. You don't see too many people coming to Jesus saying, what must we do to be saved? You know, as they do to Peter on the day of Pentecost. Because Jesus comes, but he wants us to go and do the work. Jesus does his own work, and that's the same thing he's going to do today. Jesus isn't going to go save people just unilaterally 
He's going to call you to go and proclaim to them the truth. So John, full of the Holy Spirit, preached and the Jews heard and miraculously, this was the power of the Spirit, realised that they were disobedient and that they needed to turn. So God still uses people today. In our nation, you want to see people turn from disobedience to righteousness, it's going to require people to go and speak. And I'm not saying go and stand on a street corner. I'm not saying that you're all supposed to become evangelists in that regard. But what I am saying is that we shouldn't be ashamed of the wisdom of Christ. And you shouldn't be tricked into feeling like, well, the world's kind of good. Listen, if you think it's good now, it's not going to last. The only reason why we've got anything good is because Christians have been the salt and light. And the more they drop out, you're seeing things like this program in, in, in Canada and other horrible things coming, sweeping in. Because in the end, one wisdom rules. Go, preach, speak. Share your faith. But step two, everybody needs a moment of conversion. So you need a messenger, you need a moment. I'm not very good with my, what's that called, alliteration, but I've got two. Messenger and moment. Everybody has to actually be saved by God. John couldn't actually change people's hearts. John could go and preach and he even got to baptise them, but he said, someone's coming greater than me and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and he's going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and the Holy Spirit's the Spirit that changes your hearts. And so you and I, we can't change people's hearts. We can just lead them to Christ and Christ can change their hearts. There's a limit to what you can do. I can even take someone and dunk them in water and pull them out again, but unless God, unless Christ comes and changes them, I won't do anything. I'm just telling you this because you can't go away feeling like, oh, I've got to go change people. You can't do it. But you do have to partner with God by sharing, speaking, and giving that opportunity for them to encounter Christ. Step three, and this includes all of us, we need a lifelong process of renewing our mind. Look at that, MMM. You need messenger, you need a moment, and you need your mind renewed. You're born disobedient. The wisdom of the world is deep inside of you. It's in your thoughts, in your preferences, in your habits, in your tastes, in your flavours. And God wants to change it. He wants to renew your mind. And that's one of the reasons you come to church every week is I hope that we can help you to have encounters with the Lord that do renew your mind. It's a lifelong process of sanctification where we continually discover that we've been wrong and humbly allow God to change us. If you ever get to a place where you're sitting in church or anywhere, the Bible's being written and you say, I don't need this because I'm all right, thanks. You are in danger of hell because you're falling back to being an independent, disobedient person who I don't need God. Every one of us should be saying, Lord, what do you want to change in me? All the time, really, every day. Every day something comes out of us that we say, hey, that's not from Christ. Lord, would you take it away? Would you take it away? I'm going to close and um, I'll invite the worship team to come up in a moment. What does it mean? What, what, what's, the, what's my thrust with all of this? The first thing I desperately want people to remember is that Christianity is not just therapy. It's not just therapy. It isn't just a social club. It isn't just a care home for the sick and the lonely. If you start thinking that way, you lose the power of it. And I'm seeing this happen. I was in a group of pastors the other day, good people, talking about some of the problems of society. And the thing that I noticed was that the solutions provided 
Not a single one of them was centered on the idea that people need to change by encountering Christ. It was all like, well, the problem is that we're too exclusive or we're not friendly enough or, or we don't welcome people or we need more inclusivity. And I'm like, what we need is more of Christ to change people's hearts. Because lots of places are very wonderful, inclusive and make people feel good and they never change. If you think that people who have needs aren't just as selfish as people who don't, you haven't spent any time with them. I'm not saying you don't have mercy and pity. What I'm saying is that we have to remember that we live in a division and our aim is not just to make people feel nice while keeping them in the enemy's camp. We want to, to use a dirty word, convert them. So they leave one camp and go join the other. Secondly, this one's harder. Does it get harder? You can't forget that unbelievers are still disobedient and without wisdom. In fact, the scripture calls them fools. And this does not mean that we reject everything that someone who isn't a Christian says. God does give a measure of wisdom to all people. Sometimes they're operating on wisdom that isn't their own. Nor do you simply assume that because someone's a Christian, they're wise. Because I know lots of foolish Christians, right? You can't look down on unbelievers as dirty, disobedient people. You've got to remember that when it says of Christ, he came for the lost sheep of Israel. And that's callback to the imagery of the Old Testament, including Isaiah 53, which says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Hear that? You've gone astray. And the way you went astray was by turning your own way. In other words, you were disobedient. You left. But the Lord has laid on him your sins. In other words, Christ sees that you've walked off. He says it's your fault, but then he takes the payment on himself. So there's mercy in it. We can't become people who look down our noses at the world around us. But at the same time, the church has got to wake up and realize that the world is not our friend and the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of Christ. That thing I told you about in Canada one of the reasons why I knew about it is because I read an article by a Christian minister talking about the response of several of the large Christian denominations in Canada. And the position by several of them was that they were providing prayers that would allow the person to pray while they were going the process of being killed. And the prayers contained things like, we recognize that disability has robbed us of life's dignity. This is Christians saying, if you're disabled, your life is not worth, it, worth living. And the reason they're saying it is because they have gotten soft-headed and stupid because they stopped remembering that we are not all friendly and happy with the world. We're on a mission to change the world from darkness to light. And look, I see the same thing with abortion. I see the same thing with a whole host of other issues. It doesn't mean that Christians become hard-headed ugly towards the world, but it does mean that we don't lose our primary purpose. Your primary purpose is to turn, or your primary purpose is to be turned from disobedient to just. Christ didn't just come to make people feel good. He said, leave your sins, come and follow me. And actually he gave this hopeful word, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world is not easy or light. It's actually quite difficult and hard. Finally, and I'll get, Akash, if you can come up and Jake come up, we'll sing in a moment. Although you're born again and a new creation in Christ, you still have to have your mind renewed constantly. You have to be on guard. Sometimes Christians come and they say things. I'm sure I'm one of them for the record, but I 
and we are all much worse at judging ourselves. I hear Christians say things and they, they're convinced by it. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't get that from God. I know you didn't get that from God because if I got up and said that at the local stadium or the local boardroom, they'd all clap. It's one of the little tests I do with my sermons. If I could preach this word at a local boardroom or at the local footy club and everybody just said, what a great word, I've, I've preached wrong. Because the response to the gospel is one of two things. I hate it, I don't want it, I don't care about it, or I want to change. It isn't just I like it, it's I want to change. And if there's no change, there's no gospel. If you're, cha- if you're not being changed, you're not being saved. That's the reality. And so if you've come to church all your life and you've stayed exactly as you were when you first came, you are not saved because you're not being changed. You're meant to be changed. And those changes come when the Spirit of God convicts you and says, hey, you know, like me last night, talking about somebody else and slipped into a critical attitude. Um, for the record, we figured this out, Sarah and I, because everything started going terribly wrong in the home and our baby was upset and I was cranky and she was cranky and I sort of sitting there like, what happened there? And then realised that we'd actually entered into a fair amount of criticism of somebody else just in our conversation, just slid off, slid back into our own way of doing things. Jesus doesn't say to do that. He says, honour people, love people, be gracious to people, don't hold their sins against them. So what do I do? Ask Lord, would you please forgive us? Would you please help us? And let's work on not doing that again. And it's a process of being renewed and turning from disobedience to righteousness. This is not gonna happen to you in one meeting. You're not gonna go to a Pentecostal fire meeting or a revival meeting and all of a sudden, all your disobedience is gone and you're perfectly obedient. You're gonna get in the car and drive home and you're gonna be tempted to start to either sin in some way, shape or form and the Spirit of God's gonna speak to you and say, deal with that issue because you are meant to come out of darkness, which was on this side and into light. Yeah. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and have your mind renewed by Christ as you learn to love the wisdom of the just. Why don't you stand? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You came. You sent John full of the Spirit, but You also came to us through the preaching of the Word, through an encounter with God, and You called us out of the place of disobedience and into the wisdom and the obedience of God. And I pray that today we would grow in that. Lord, we become lights in this world. We wouldn't be darkness, but we'd be light, separate. Come out of them. Come out of them is what Christ says. Be made whole. Become like me. I ask that you'd help us each with this, that we would learn to discern what is the good, pleasing wisdom of God. And we would not choose to walk in disobedience anymore. We thank you. We pray. Save our city. Save our nation. Save us, Lord. Save our neighbours. Thank you, Jesus. Just remain standing and I'll just invite you to close your eyes. I'm going to set up for singing a song again. But in the meantime, don't miss the opportunity. Just to talk to the Lord. And if you've got disobedience in your heart that you know you need to deal with, now is the time to do that.